My name is Susie Can, and I hope you enjoy exploring with me the thoughts that come with this thread. If you have any interest in supporting what I'm doing or getting in touch, please do so through the website kylak.ie, where you will also find other resources and connections that I create around each podcast so that if some of the tweaks of interest come to you through them, you have a place to go to go a little further and deeper or to find other information or to find a way to support by maybe wanting to collaborate or offer something or even a donation. Thanks for listening. The second thread on the systems in which we live and the ways to rethink and regenerate based on systemic thinking in a new way is influenced and connected to by and to the thread on identity, the second thread on identity, because in that thread I talk about all of the systems of prejudice and conflict and oppression that I grew up within while quite oblivious to what was going on around me. But as I became aware, as I moved to a different country and had an awakening to new worldviews, I began to understand some of the failures of that system. And I think that really influenced a lifelong search for alternatives, for systems that didn't operate from a power over and were more on a egalitarian, justice and inclusive kind of worldview. And I found those worldviews most strongly in indigenous worldviews. And the frameworks that came from there that are bridging back to them, I believe, from people who've had their indigeneity eroded or have such a long time back to try and connect with it that if we are to become indigenous to planet Earth in common, we need bridges, I think, such as the strategies and the systems that I have understood through permaculture and other bridging systems, sociocracy and other ways of working with the world around us. One of the approaches to that, one of the strategies that I understand in thinking about these things in systemic ways is to stop the extractive economies that are based on a worldview that is promotes consumerism in order to drive the machinery of extraction that has this ongoing colonial par over mindset to extract not only resources but people and value and concentrate wealth in the top few percent of any society around the world and that also takes those extraction and doesn't deal with what happens on the other downstream effects in terms of digging into the earth, mining, burning, and definitely dumping of waste. 
And that enclosure then of all that wealth and power and the amount of militarization that that takes. So it's why it's been called the military-industrial complex or the patriarchal military-industrial complex that is sometimes abbreviated as the patrix. And that's the dominant system across the world now. And so sometimes, if they, you think of it from the point of view of a bully in the world, sometimes part of the solution is stopping the bad, and it's oppositional, and is protest. And while I did spend time in very much in that part of the resistance to this extractive economic system, I think I also learned something of how to deal with the bully is yes, stand up and yes, protest and yes, find means legal and otherwise to stop the bad. But I also grow the good, if you like, or to starve the bad and move away. So in the playground, I imagine it as walking away from the bully or stopping the bully but also cultivating new friends, cultivating a new system that, that sort of starves the bully of their power. So the starving of the economic extractive system for me was to build the new and to try to figure out what that vision was and what the building the new might look like and how one part of that would be this power over change to invest more energy in collective power, collectivism, participation, cooperation, collaboration. And those were really strong inclinations that grew in me, I think, influenced from that early childhood that I speak about in the other thread. And so the regenerative economy or the regenerative renewal of the earth around us is to focus in on regenerating of our resource base, the setting aside and rewilding and participatory connection with the world around us, more of that sacred, caring worldview so that we are part of the world and to hurt something in the world is to hurt ourselves. And also at the same time to be understanding of the complex systems that I talked about in the first episode in this thread through an ecological worldview and through a connected relationship worldview that sees us as not separate from nature and interconnected and interwoven and a change in maybe not even a type of democracy where you can, as happened in, in my childhood in the North, where one majority can dominate the minority and the view and the well-being of a minority isn't taken care of. But this is what led me to have an interest in systems like sociocracy and consensus and consent-based decision-making. So is that overall there's more cooperation and leading to the vision of ecological and social well-being. In this episode, I want to talk a little bit more about permaculture, it being a system of design. A lot of people come to permaculture through the lens of its first application of design, which is 
food systems or gardening. But one of the things that happened as permaculture as an ethical design science started to ripple out as a movement of people who had these similar values that I've just been talking about is that as a system of design, it also got applied to other areas. So yes, agriculture and the growing of food. But then that starts to cause you to think about and have to address land tenure and access to land and community governance or cooperation. And also the stewardship of land that you don't now need if you don't have an extractive economy that's trying to maximize profit. Therefore, you need surplus and you need scarcity and you need to play with those things in your economy. You don't, you're not, your game is not to try and feed people. And so the understanding of stewardship or relationship with land, not from the point of view of ownership and extraction, but rather how can we best live in harmony with the land that we live around and in. And so stewardship and ownership changes are part of what comes into the conversation. What will we need changes if, if everything begins to be decommodified, if food was decommodified, I truly believe our entire system would change radically for the good. The idea that education is considered a human right, but food and access to your local organic in the sense of produced at the simplest local level and is not of a human right and the, the your culturally appropriate food. There's a term food sovereignty that has been used to talk about this access to food in a more human rights based way. But because agriculture has been part of the economic extractive system, it's had a profound effect on the lowest level producers of that food and the pressure that is on farmers, especially smaller farmers, to maximize profit and, yes, maintain the land so as it keeps producing, but not from the point of view of how can it be producing not just for the human world, but for the soil biology or for the biodiversity that surrounds the fields. And there's just been such a huge effect of this kind of extractive model of agriculture that is, it's really hard to even conceive of at times. There was one slide from a talk that I went to from a permaculture conference in London a few years ago. And this slide showed the big change that agriculture has made in terms of the weight of vertebrate land animals. 10,000 years ago, the weight of humans made up on the planet was 1% of all of the vertebrate land mammals. And 99% of that weight was wild animals. The changes in our agriculture have made radical changes to those percentages. Now the weight is 32% humans, 67% livestock on the farms of the world. So that change from 10,000 years, which is about when this system of farming was beginning to be designed by early agriculturalists, the extracting of fertility from the land into grains and the increase in livestock 
and the eating of meat as a majority part of our diet, which it had not previously been. That has stood out to me very strongly, and it is why my interest and many people's interest in permaculture starts in this place of trying to understand how could we design a more ecologically robust and vibrant food system that would develop biodiversity, that would enhance ecosystems, yielding abundance and stability, that would regenerate and recharge any groundwater stores and create oases and create systems that understood the full hydrological cycle, that would revitalize soil life so that the carbon cycles and the complex diversity of the of the soil food web is just incredible how many creatures live in the soil and it's something like one teaspoon of soil has as many living creatures as there are people on the planet so this huge soil life the idea behind um, permaculture design but as i said the minute that you get into that you start finding these other links that our our culture our food is linked to every other aspect of our society in terms of political thinking it is a totally different worldview in terms of finances and economics what if our money was not extractive what if there were local and regional currencies for means of exchange what if we shared tools that we need to move about or to work on building or on land what if all the investment in the world was essentially fair trade truly fair trade so what we exchanged felt fair to all parties and what if we really as a community supported our producers and our farmers so they weren't under pressure of all of the chain of extraction that goes from any producer, whether that's a miner who mines for copper and is the primary producer, the person in a mine. We've heard in recent years of the conditions that still go on, the miners that got trapped in the mine in South America. We, we understand there are still people going into the ground they are not the people who are gaining a fair share of that production. Something like copper or lithium goes all the way up through a chain of economics that extracts wealth so that those that are manufacturing, maybe the phones that have the lithium batteries in them and the copper wiring, they are able to have an extraction of wealth, but not the people that are making them the people at the top of those factories. And it isn't any different in agriculture. It's hidden through subsidies in the Western world, particularly in Europe and in America and Canada. It's hidden that the primary producer is the poorest person in the chain, that they are like the miner that can get stuck down a mine. That primary producer is under pressure of all the quotas that might have existed a while ago in the European Union or the subsidies that came in in the 1950s purely for chemicals so that if you grew these foods with these chemicals you could access subsidies and that would mean that if your neighbor chose not to use those chemicals your neighbor would 
be more vulnerable to the economics and probably go out of business and you could consolidate and buy a bigger bit of land and you could extract more value and those kinds of pressures to intensify. I've had lots of conversations with farmers in my wider family and they they talk about how the land is their livelihood and they would like to be taking care of the land as a primary goal of what they do. And yet they acknowledge the pressure to have a milk quota or to have a certain pricing structure on the milk and the changes and fluctuations on a milk price and what that does to the kinds of things they'll do to try to create some resilience, the numbers that they'll stock in cattle or the numbers of calves they'll have and things that they do all the way just to try to keep afloat. And in fact, mostly farmers I speak to talk about the level of debt that their farm families are in and where they have to keep in the system and plugged in to service those debts for maybe the machinery that allows them to dig deeply into the ground and plow and then go and harvest with heavy machinery, bigger amounts of, of grain for feeding those animals that I'm talking about, the large stocking rates across the whole planet. So this system is is very hard for people to get out of. And that's why it starts linking to things like CSAs, community-supported agriculture, and cooperatives. You start thinking about where you're living and the idea of access to housing and who can access that. And so eco-villages that start trying to be places with a different relationship to land, but then also different kinds of houses. So building and thinking of the extraction and not extracting in terms of how could you use more natural materials in the building, things that don't require the levels of energy use in terms of their manufacture. All these start to come into permaculture design systems and any related, like the cousins of permaculture, of which there are many. So people that might have some of the same fields of design that they're looking at and these different domains at a personal level, at a local level, at the collective level and at the global level. And the thing that I, oh, is striking these days is that the solutions to the issues we have of loss of biodiversity and unstable climate, all of these solutions exist in the world and are growing. And the question, of course, is whether or not they will have enough adoption and enough of the stopping the, the bullies at a massive enough level to reach a tipping point where they're the, the normal system, where we go back to living in something that can repair and regenerate. And that's a, it's a difficult question, but I want to get a little more into some of the detail of the permaculture design framework. And essentially, it's very accessible. We teach it on our permaculture design certificate course that was created as a 72-hour curriculum by the founders of permaculture, Mollison and Holgram. And at its core of that curriculum is beginning to understand what they call principles. And they are attitudes and approaches to design. And these principles, as I talked about in the first episode, come from 
a worldview and an understanding of nature around us as being a system we're fully part of and it is us and we are it. And it comes from an understanding and language of ecology and applied ecology. And so what Mollison kind of did was step back from the whole of our living systems and say, if you were a designer, if you were trying to see what is it that is working so well in the natural system, that means that it has become a stable system, a life-giving system on this rock we live on in a solar system in the universe. What can you see are the principles that give it its resilience? What is happening in natural systems? And if we could extract those principles and use them to be a framework for how we design human design systems, that would be a bridge back to us living in a more harmonious, connected relationship with the world and stop eroding it to the point of, of crisis points of system collapse and ecosystem collapse and mass extinction events and so on. One of the things that he, he did and it was write down his, come out and extract his 10 principles. And at the same time, he was working with his then student um, Holgram and Holgram took the principles and he also wrote them down or developed them in his practice over time, co-developed with Mollison, but also on his own. And he came up with them in a slightly different way with 12 principles. And when Mollison went back looking at them, he also looked at what attitude would influence the design that comes from the ethics that I mentioned in the first episode, the ethics of permaculture being earth care, people care, and fair distribution or fair shares, making use of the surplus not for profit, but for the well-being of all life. And he also then developed these attitudes to bring. And so I, I might just mention a couple of those and talk about my understanding and how I've tried to conceive and work with them in my own life and designs and with other people. The first one that I've been talking about already is working with nature rather than against her. And that is pretty deep down. It's quite a fundamental thing to address whether your attitude that you bring to whatever you design, whatever you implement in the design of your life and the areas of your life that you have influenced your spheres of activity, whether you're working for or against nature. And what that really comes down to is whether you're trying to impose control. And I think this is something that most people in Western world systems grapple with. I think this is something that most Western people are really trying to grapple with when we think about the things we believed or were taught to believe we could control. As a woman, one of those is the balance of the cycles of my body, systems of control going against those cycles and doing things in a world that requires me to be the same, be consistent, be uniform, be conforming, notion of manufacture almost, 
that says I'm going to have a quality controlled product of whatever it is I'm doing in the world. And in order to do that, I will rise at this time. I will be regimented and be controlled in my rhythm of my day. And I will also be controlled in the rhythm of my months, regardless of the energy in my body, regardless of the cycles in my body, regardless of not just the monthly cycles, but for all humans of all genders, the cycles of our life and our childhood and our adolescence and our adulthood and our aging processes. And again, the system pushes for a control of consistency and uniformity throughout all of those years so that I behave and become almost a false sense of self, that I behave, that I, my mind and my body are just as able to carry out what my, my work, my job, my life in the same rhythm as I did when I was 20 or 30. And I'm not talking about knowledge here. I'm talking really about the workings of my body and my mind at a fundamental level. And so that's just an example from the personal. And then if you extend out your sphere of influence, and as I said, permaculture has been mostly known for and people's start of the journey into this kind of exploration of new thinking or old thinking renewed is their gardens. As I was talking on the Identity podcast, the second episode about being from a Protestant Northern Irish background, the kinds of control in gardens and houses that are the cliches and the stereotypes of that community are for me the place that I can laugh with and imagine and think about because I was this child that also got freedom to be wild. And I think I have just about through resistance and through luck in some ways held on to that wildness. One of the pieces of luck was not being able to understand, especially when I was young, a lot of the linear, logical, analytical and control systems and not doing well in the graded and marking and conformed kinds of measurements that are that education has become increasingly, even since I was young, increasingly about consistency again of conformity of measuring children by the same measurements and trying to get all children to perform and fit into these very specific boxes that don't involve imagination and wildness and crazy play. I think because I found it, I struggled so much in that mainstream education that I held on a bit to this other possibility of wildness. And I, why I'm laughing about it, looking at it from my permaculture journey, is that I was always going to have a wild garden that was full of biodiversity because it really wasn't in me to know how to control it and tame it and manage it in the ways that I saw from the, the neat lawns of, of my neighbours across the north, the kinds of hedgerows trimmed to an exact measure each winter. I think the idea of working with nature rather than against her, what is it that a piece of land wants to be? What is it that left to its own devices it would wildly be? And how can you work with that if you're looking to be a carer of a piece of land and you're looking for yields for humans. And so this is a, another of 
Molson's principles that kind of links to that is the idea that the yield of a system is theoretically unlimited. The only limit being imagination and vision of the designer. That's usually quite hard for people who've grown up in a system of scarcity, deliberate commodification of goods and services so that they are kept at the right levels of scarcity to influence their pricing and their supply in an extractive economic system. Because one of the biggest questions that gets asked of a permaculturist often is, so can permaculture feed the world? Can a system be yielding enough to feed humans? While I don't have absolute answers to that, because it's actually very hard to measure the yield of systems designed in a permaculture work with nature way, because they aren't monocropping. There's not one acre that you could take and say, here is one acre of wheat. This wheat has got this weight and it is this calorie value that then feeds this number of people. So you can do a study that says that. If you look at this an acre of land like the kind that we've been developing and regenerating on our marginal land in County Wicklow, and you say, well, what does this acre yield? It's really much more complex. And does it yield the same biomass? Well, there's probably a lot more biomass in a permaculture design system often incorporates an application of forest gardening, which is multi-layered yield. So it's not a monocrop of corn or wheat. One part of the season, it might yield this many berries. And another part of the season, it might yield this many nuts. Another part, it might yield this many fruit in weight. But then in that same acre, it might be integrated with some areas of annual vegetables. So then it might yield kilos of vegetables. And then there's these other yields that are less tangible. It might yield fiber. I use New Zealand flax plant for tying up my bean canes. And I could take that same material and make hats and decorations and potentially clothing. That's just one fiber. But the whole acre has got mixtures of set-aside wild zones. So there's bramble, there's bark on birch trees and other trees, there's grasses. So I could weave clothing out of those. That could be another yield that could give me shelter for my body. I could use fibers when mixing the cob. I was talking about in the practical skills in the first episode, I could use bracken dried from my one acre and make cob to create an oven or potentially a, a cob building or shelter. So there's this understanding of yield as it depends. I could take some of the wild plants and just carefully forage for things and leave things to regenerate. I could take pig nut, which is a little nut that comes in May. It's not really a true nut, it's a tuber tuberous part of a wild plant in Ireland called the pignut and it has a little white umbellifer flower and it comes in the grassland and if I'm careful I can very carefully use a digging stick and find these little nuts in the grass in May. 
There's an old song that goes, here we go, gathering nuts, gathering nuts in May, which if you think about it, doesn't make sense. If it was any other kind of nut, they come in autumn. This is really a little ground nut. Or I could extract essences of the gorse flowers. I could make gorse wine. So it's hard to make an idea of a comparison of yield just on an acre. And what about the education in that one acre on the garden that I'm developing for, yes, human needs and human consumption, even fuel and fiber and shelter. While that's happening, I'm not creating a monoculture that has, that is sprayed, that has no soil life, also very little food for any other insect or creature sprayed with insecticide. Anything that might have tried to live in the ground is plowed up and killed, whether that's the small soil biota or whether it's mouse or a shrew and the creatures that would have eaten those from the sky or the things that might have lived in hedges. And so on the comparison to the acre I'm talking about, on that acre, there is an increase in habitat formation. There's a deliberate act to set aside habitat. There's new habitat there is the sharing of the surplus, sharing of the produce. Lots of the fruit that I have there is shared with the birds. Not everything is protected or netted. And there's so much abundance of fruit, actually, that it's hard for us to harvest all of it anyway. So there's lots of gleanings for birds and other insects and creatures. There's lots of niches and nooks and crannies. And there are lots of what could be considered vermin in another system, something to be eradicated, insects and rats and mice and shrews and so on. And yet in, in our system, we don't need to eradicate them. In fact, there are more and more top predators showing up, kestrels and kites, birds of prey, and even stoats from time to time that come and, and begin to keep the system in balance. So all of this is about the connection to working with nature and also the connection of the different yields that you can imagine from a piece of land. And this tries then to in part answer the question in a more broad and systemic way than can permaculture feed the world. What is the number of calories you can generate off a piece of land? The other yield is the relationships with people the kinds of people that interact with a piece of land that is biodiverse and abundant, the relationship I mentioned about community-supported agriculture that people might invest in a box scheme like we ran in the past and others do now across Ireland where they subscribe and give you some income for the producer that cuts out all of the middlemen, all of the packaging, all of the transport from factory to factory to be packaged and all of the packaging and then all of the supermarket infrastructure and staffing and electricity and heat and the transport going there in your car once is not taking into account all of that embodied energy that brings that food to you. Coming to pick up in the same box each week, bringing it back, no packaging, very little mileage traveled in a local area, is another relationship in yield in terms of the food. 
Another one is the education and people coming to learn to produce their own food and to create their own systems. And quite a number of our past participants on, on permaculture design courses on the farm at Gargdura have gone on to be producers themselves in bigger ways, but in this same working with nature and their creatively designing other yields that is just a different person or a different group's imagination coming up with even ever more exciting projects. And so it's sort of proving how possible this is to be feeding 30 families, 60 families off really small acreage. Much of the permaculture practiced in Ireland is on marginal land because the edges and the margins are places that are available in an economic system where the good land has been bought up for the extractive economy. And then the one other answer that I like to try to explore when asked, can permaculture feed the world, is to at least put that question back on the current system. Is the current system that is extractive and damaging of habitat and nature and damaging of ecosystems at a really fundamental level and massively eroding topsoil on the planet. In a hundred years, we have eroded about half the world's topsoil of this intensive agriculture that came with the dominance of fossil fuel dominated agriculture, agrochemistry, using so much fuel, all of the big machinery using so much fuel, that as we've done that, the topsoil has just been eroded half of the topsoil of the planet in 100 years. And given how long it takes for topsoil to be created, that's a pretty serious thing. And so these regenerative soil practices are currently only happening in marginal lands on edges where people can afford them in a society and land tenure and ownership system such as existed at the moment in Ireland and many countries in the world. But to push back and say, is that system, that extractive system that's so damaging, is it feeding the world? And the answer is it isn't because it is the commodification of food. It is keeping the food inside of commodity markets, inside of about 20 companies that own the access to and the rights to this extractive food. And the names are familiar to people. You just need to look at the, the brand names that are across all of the food on supermarket shelves, the Heinz's and the Nestle's of the world. There are these 20 companies there about that control the food of the world. And so they're certainly not set up because of the legal form of a corporation and a company is to maximize profit for shareholders. And although there are shifts and, and reverse innovations and disruptive innovation happening when some new businesses are trying to change that, not report only on the bottom line of profit to shareholders, but looking at new bottom lines for environmental and social impact. And I'm involved in a lot of education and exploration in the that space of social and environmental enterprise as a bridging tool, I would say, in this system to try and think about non-extractive business or at least value-led business on our way, I hope, to moving towards more fully cooperative and 
collaborative business. The extractive version, the one that doesn't look at its bottom line any other way, not a triple second bottom line or a triple bottom line, those businesses are legally bound to continue to keep their products selling and make those profits. So they're not structured in any way that can give food to everyone. And so that means governments step in, NGOs step in, people with compassion trying to feed people when you have crises and when crises are created by these economic conditions and wars, attempting to feed the poor, feed the starving. These images that have pervaded Irish psyches for decades of who is poor and who is hungry and being told when we were children, you've to eat up all your dinner, there are starving children in Africa. In that, those all those things that affect the system and all of that coming from a practice of agriculture that doesn't try to create abundance and surplus and share that within a community context at an affordable and accessible and culturally appropriate way. So those are just two of the attitudinal principles. There are lots of other ones. Using and valuing diversity in your designing, maximizing energy through how it's used as it flows through your system, changing of pace and slower and smaller solutions, valuing what's local. But one more that relates, I think, to the yield, because if you're taking an output from that one acre of land, if you're taking a yield from a food system, then the other one that is a principle of permaculture, less an attitude and more a design principle, is design a system that produces no waste. In recent years, people have begun to talk about this as a circular economy. And I think it's very easy to understand if you think of it in an agricultural circular economy system or in a circular regenerative system. Because what that is talking about is that one acre I refer to in the industrialized model of chemical-based agriculture, where you have your one acre of wheat, which when I refer to what the energy and the fossil fuel use and the chemical use that goes into a field of wheat in Ireland, I once had a student on our permaculture course whose dad was a farmer and who grew wheat describe these other eco-aware who didn't know about the food system they support. So he described for us what his dad did and, and it really left people reeling in shock because people don't have a connection often to the farmer, to the producer, to the way their food is coming to them. And, and it's a kind of a blindness. It's an exploitation of land and people. It's not visible what the violence in the system is doing to land and people globally. And so he described just this one cycle of a year for his father. And I would interrupt him and ask him to give a little more detail. So we started with preparing the land. And the first thing he said, you know, big, big machinery goes on and plows the land. And he mentioned that it was a slight change that the depth of that plowing was beginning. There was an awareness coming back in to that mainstream agriculture about the damage to the soil. So maybe it was tilled at a slightly shallower level, but originally deeply ploughed land in order to break up the soil for spring. And the reason that the soil needed broken up was because it had been compacted just before that 
by the harvesting, also in big machines. So the cycle began by breaking up the soil and then coming back with a tractor and tilling the soil. These are big tractors, many horsepower. If you imagine the 4,000 horses in the field plowing, it gives you an idea. The power and the fossil fuel going in to create that plowing. They'd go in and plow and then they'd sow seed and I would stop them and say, what kind of seed? Oh, well, seed that is, I have to have a license for because it is not, and, and other people said, oh, you mean your seed is genetically modified? And they said, no, no, it's just patented bread, wheat seed that has to be bought under license. And it's dressed seed. And again, I interrupted and said, and what, what do you mean by dressed seed? And he said, oh, well, it's coated with poison so that mice don't eat it. Then it is spread on the field and the wheat grows. But then he mentioned through that period how many times it might get sprayed. And it would depend on the year and it would depend on insect threat, but it could be up to three times. Then we got to when it's ready to harvest. He said, oh, and then we kill it all with Roundup. We spray it one more time and kill the wheat with Roundup. And people asked, what, why, what, why do you spray it with a chemical to kill it all? He said, well, because if we left it to naturally ripen, it wouldn't ripen, ripen in uniformity. It wouldn't all ripen at the same time. So by killing it, it dries out and is ready to harvest at the same time. So this chemical burden that's been sprayed on the land and on the wheat and in the waterways around it and where it all goes, that continues. And then the machinery comes back and the big combines come in and they cut the wheat and then you're back around in the cycle. It's then extracted and sent off to be processed into different things. And it's an output of that one acre. That's the output is those those wheat. It requires all of those inputs, hugely expensive inputs and hugely damaging inputs in order to extract what you extract from that one acre. Nothing is returned from the wheat to the soil. So everything is extracted from the field. The grains are extracted and so are the stalks and they are bundled as straw and used in animal bedding and so on. So in this circular economy, that's a linear system. Agriculture comes out as a inputs and outputs in a line. And in the similar acre that I'm describing is the idea that if we're to design it by producing no waste, then many things must be recycled in the system. So leaves must fall and go back into the soil. And anything that's chopped to make way for a path or access or to create space for something else to grow that is chopped and dropped onto the soil and again recycled back into the soil. Animals, the wild ones that live there that come in and birds that come in and some of the small, very small flock of domesticated birds such as ducks and chickens, they might be on the forest floor of the system and all of them drop in their poo. And if you run compost toilet system efficiently, human poo can also serve to regenerate soils and that can form part of the cycle. Vegetables off-site taking from a box scheme 
Sometimes you could ask people to return their peelings as compost if they're not using them themselves to regenerate a garden, but they might live in an apartment, not have access. If they are visitors and they come from eating more exotic foods from different places, they can deposit those in a compost toilet, then minerals and can go back into the soil. So the idea is that you reestablish and regenerate the soil life and biota in the biomass that comes from that is abundant and then that biomass is returned and no waste is produced. That is so much harder to apply in our systems to everything else. But I think that the effort and the will and the intention to that is growing. There are attempts at zero waste groups there and zero waste communities. There's circular economy but it's really hard and it's really hard in the economic system. Sometimes you look at a zero waste on social media, you see people talking about a kind of consumerist produce no waste. You know, there's a first go out and buy these kind of containers and then manufacture your soap and then do something else. And that that's very privileged position often to be able to have the time and energy and effort to be able to do that. While there are great examples of practice that are inspirational in the sense that it shows what might be possible, there's all these other changes that have to be part of that. And so each of the principles that we're trying to apply when redesigning a system, and, and it's why it tends to then go into thinking about, well, how could we live together more as a community? Would that help? What could we do as an intentional community, as a transition community to this type of life.